Hello, welcome to Defender's Voice, a ministry focused on Christian apologetics. Our speaker is Dr. Paul Kadopali. Born in India, Dr. Paul Kadopali has been serving the Lord as a Christian apologist, medical doctor, and evangelist. You can learn more about his teaching and medical ministry on our website at www.drpaul.org. That is www.doctorpaul.org. For today's lecture, here is Dr. Paul Kadopali. Welcome to Defenders Wise. I'm Dr. Paul. Thank you for joining us today. Defenders Wise is a discussion forum for current world events. Please visit our website www.drpaul.org to read my blog posts. Become a partner in our ministry. Our focus is on medical missions, our orphanage work, even with a small donation. You're going to make a lot of difference in someone else's life. Visit our website www.drpaul.org to make a tax-directable donation to this ministry. Those of you who already became our partners, I thank you for your generosity. Today's question is Craig Evans's view of the Gospel of John correct? Excellent question. I already made one video on this topic. Please watch part one of this lecture series. Today I will present part two. To introduce these two intellectuals. Bart Ehrman is the professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Craig Evans is the professor of religious studies at Houston Baptist University. One of you raised this issue from a debate that happened between Bart Ehrman and Craig Evans. I gave the link to the video in case if you want to watch this debate again, please click on this link. Interestingly, both Bart Ehrman and Craig Evans agree on one thing. Apostle John did not write the Gospel of John. Now, this is dangerous. Christian scholars have been slowly accepting the ideas of Bart Ehrman as truth. No wonder. People are losing faith in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. In today's lecture, I will explain why both of them are wrong. Apostle John was uniquely qualified to write the Gospel of John. He had many intimate experiences of witnessing the divine glory of Lord Jesus Christ. For example, he was one of the three disciples who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. What happened in the transfiguration? Jesus' clothes became dazzlingly white. He was full of divine glory. Moses and Elijah came to talk to him. A cloud appeared and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. 
when both were alive both had theophanies what is the theophany that means god appeared to moses and elijah in person but they could not see his face now on this mountain both saw the face of god for the first time when they saw jesus when you see jesus you see the face of god moses elijah and john all three saw the face of god at the same time god gave john that unique privilege that is why john's gospel is so powerful this jesus whom moses predicted This Jesus whom Elijah foreshadowed is God himself. What happened then? A cloud appeared. The cloud symbolizes the presence of God in the Old Testament. Then there was a voice saying, "This is my beloved son. He is not a lawgiver like Moses. He is not a prophet like Elijah he is the beloved son of God So John was one of the three disciples who witnessed this magnificent divine glory of Lord Jesus Christ It was so appropriate that he was chosen to write a gospel that emphasized the divinity of Jesus The internal evidence clearly points us to John the disciple as the author of this gospel then Bart Ehrman questions the memory of the writers how did we get our new testament Bart Ehrman says it is like a telephone game get some kids and make them stand in a straight line the first person whispers a brief story into the ear of the person standing to his or her right then that person whispers the story into the ear of the next person finally the last player listens to the story and tells us what he heard everybody laughs because he gives us an entirely different story from what we got from the first player what is the objective of this game from the first player to the last player the story has changed a lot then the teacher looks at us and says little children this is how misconceptions enter into our stories you have seen how the story has changed from the first player to the last player Professor Armand says now guys this is what happened to the bible stories from the people who lived at the time of Jesus to the people who wrote down the new testament the stories have changed a lot let us look into his argument first of all look at the rules of this game when you play this telephone game you must whisper If you say it loud this game will fail but that is not what happened to gospel writers when lord jesus christ was preaching thousands of people could listen to him there was no whispering john was standing right in front of jesus when he was preaching all his sermons John was standing right in front of Jesus on the mount of transfiguration when God spoke out from heaven 
John was standing right in front of Jesus when he was speaking from the cross. The second rule of the telephone game is you are alone as you transmit the information from the preceding player to the next player. You basically stood there. You have no opportunity to check with the first player. But the gospel writers were not working in isolation. The apostles were living with Jesus and traveling with him from place to place. They were having group discussions after Jesus' preaching. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was living with John's family in the city of Ephesus. So John had access to the very first player of the game, Mary, the blessed mother of Jesus. If you could talk to the first player of the game directly, there would be no chance for error. Cognitive neuroscience increased our understanding of human memory a lot. Back when I was in medical school, I spent a lot of time studying the human brain. I used to spend hours and hours dissecting the human brain. Our understanding of the human brain and its memory functions greatly improved in recent decades. Let me show you a diagram that helps you a lot to understand how memory works. There is short-term memory or working memory and long-term memory. Now these memories are not separate, they interact with each other. We put information into working memory using visual spatial sketch pad and phonological loop. That information passes over into the long-term memory. We also put information into the long-term memory using episodic memory and semantic memory and procedural memory. Working memory is short-term memory. So using a phonological loop, you hear a speech, then you rehearse it and store it in your working memory. The apostles were listening to Jesus' words and sermons. They were watching his works. Then they were also preaching those sermons to other audiences. So using a visuospatial sketch pad, you store and process information in a visual or spatial form. That is what you see and what you experience. When we play the telephone game, we don't have the benefit of a visual spatial sketch pad. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, John was there to witness that miracle. It was a visual spatial event for him. What is episodic memory? Memories of specific individual events. It plays out like a little movie in your head. How did your graduation go? Everything you did on your graduation day plays out like a little movie in your head. That is episodic memory. Semantic memory. Semantic memory is the memory about facts. 
some facts just stick in your mind without any context. How much is 3 times 5? You say 3 times 5 is 15. It is a semantic memory. You don't have to think about it. It is the general knowledge about the world land through repeated exposure to the information. You can decontextualize it. You might be able to remember the very first time your teacher told you that fact in the math class. You went to school that day. You sat at your seat. Your teacher comes and teaches the multiplication table. That is episodic memory. So there is a continuum between episodic memory and semantic memory. There is a part of our brain called hippocampus. And a lot of facts and events can be stirred in this area of our brains that will stay there for a lifetime. Then there is procedural memory. It is the body's mastery of a physical routine. Procedural memory comes when you do certain things on a routine. It is often called muzzle memory. Let us say you are a cook. You cook the same thing for years and years. That recipe sticks in your mind. Your body acts accordingly. This procedural memory impacts your whole being, both body and mind. Our long-term memory is based on information encoded in our brains using some or a combination of these memory systems. John was a fisherman. He was fishing every day. His procedural memory is strong. He was preaching a lot. That is also procedural memory. In John chapter 21, he was fishing on the Sea of Galilee. This happened after the crucifixion of Lord Jesus Christ. That day, they put their nets in the sea. They were not able to catch any fish. Then a stranger came to them and told them, Throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some fish. Reluctantly, they did that. And to their amazement, they caught a large number of fish. The disciples did not recognize this stranger, but John did. He told Peter, it is the Lord. John says, they sat down and counted the fish. It was 153. How can you remember that event? John was fishing. It was his procedural memory. He was one of the three intimate disciples of Christ. That is semantic memory. It just stayed in his mind as a fact. That day when we saw Jesus, we caught 153 fish. That is episodic memory. Everything that happened that day, he remembers like a little movie playing in his head. Recently, I was talking to a Holocaust survivor. She told me she still remembers events that happened 80 years ago. Then she was a teenager. Around 9 a.m. in the morning, she heard some footsteps. Then there was knocking on their door. Our sister opened the door. The Nazi officers walked inside, ordered her, her dad, her mom and her sister to leave to a train station. Her dad and mom were separated in the train station. 
she remembers the horn of an oncoming train as they were leaving. She remembers the dress she wore that day. She told me, it feels like those events happened yesterday. How can she remember things that happened 80 years ago? Because those painful events became episodic memories in her mind. Events that produce lots of emotions like fear, anxiety, stress, they are more likely to be remembered than events that do not produce emotions. So John the Apostle had ample opportunities to accurately remember the events that happened during his association with Jesus. When we play a telephone game, we only use sensory memory that is so weak and transitory. There was no time to use any processes that involve long-term memory. So for Bart Ehrman to use this silly illustration is highly disingenuous. It is not applicable to the disciples who wrote the New Testament. Then we should also consider the external evidence. If you look at the available sources from the first three centuries of Christianity, how many people said that John wrote this gospel? Many. How many people rejected the view that John wrote this gospel? None. I challenge both Bart Ehrman and Craig Evans to give me one source that rejected the view that John wrote this gospel. Let us start with Irenaeus. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who himself was a disciple of Jesus. John, who walked with Jesus, mentored Polycarp, and Polycarp mentored Irenaeus. Around 180 AD, he wrote a five-volume book called Against Hearsays. You can still get this book today, available on Amazon.com. It was a refutation of Gnosticism. For many centuries, scholars relied on the writings of Irenaeus to understand Gnosticism. His reputation grew after the 1940s because in 1945, archaeologists discovered a magnificent collection of Gnostic literature near the town of Nag Hammadi in Egypt. After studying this Gnostic library, scholars realized the accuracy of Irenaeus' portrayal of Gnostics. Irenaeus has such a great reputation. In his book, he accurately described his Gnostic opponents. Something we should all learn from Irenaeus. Don't misrepresent your opponents. This Irenaeus explicitly names John as the author of the gospel. You should also know about Papias. Papias was a Greek apostolic father. He was the bishop of Hierapolis, which is Pamukkale in today's Turkey. His life was between 60 and 130 AD. According to Irenaeus, Papias had known the apostle John and his gospel. John lived his latter life in Ephesus. 
Pamukkale is not far from Ephesus. He knew John personally and accepted his gospel as accurate. Many other church fathers also named John as the author of the fourth gospel. Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Dionysius of Alexandria, Eusebius, the writer of Moratonian canon. These church fathers were scattered all over the world from Europe to Asia to Africa. That means the Gospel of John was widely read in the second century. I respectfully ask Bart Ehrman to name one Christian or non-Christian author from that period who questioned John's authorship of the fourth gospel. Just name one. He is throwing out his own speculations and assumptions as facts of history. The internal evidence and the external evidence are strongly in favor of John as the author of the fourth gospel. But Ehrman often says that his views are shared by most scholars in academia today. Of course. See folks, today's academia is driven by the view that God does not intervene in human affairs. They are mostly atheists or deists. If you agree that John is the author of this gospel, then you have to throw your weight behind John's testimony that Jesus is God in human flesh. That would put a chill in every atheist professor's spine. Their views are only their presuppositions. They have no evidence to produce from the beginning of Christian history. Then let us see the timing of the writings of this gospel. When was this gospel written? First, the internal evidence. The destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple in AD 70 were the most catastrophic events in Jewish history until the Holocaust in 20th century. Interestingly, the first temple was destroyed on August 30, 586 BC, and the second temple was destroyed on August 30, AD 70. Surprisingly, the New Testament is silent about these events. The best explanation for this silence is that New Testament was completed before the destruction of the second temple in AD 70. Jesus Christ our Lord predicted the fall of Jerusalem 37 years before it happened. Jesus described his own body superior to the structure of the temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The author of this gospel gives his own comments about Jesus' deeds and sayings. But Herman says that this gospel was written with an anti-Jewish spirit. If that were so, and if this gospel were written after AD 70, that would be a perfect opportunity for this author to use temple destruction to nail Judaism. Look, 
the Romans destroyed both our Jesus and your temple. But your temple is gone, but our Jesus rose again from the dead, just as he predicted. That would have been a great bragging time for this author. But you never find such we told you so attitude in this gospel or any other book of the New Testament that clearly points us to the writing of this gospel before AD 70. Let me labor this point with a, an illustration. Let us say, I visited New York City and visited Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. During my visit, I predicted their destruction. These towers will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left over the other. The Twin Towers, sadly, tragically, were destroyed on September 11, 2001. Suppose someone wrote a biography about my life. In one of the chapters, he writes about my visit to the New York City World Trade Center. The writer talks about my prediction about the destruction of the Twin Towers, but says nothing about the actual destruction of the Twin Towers. What would be the best explanation for that vermission? Most likely, this other wrote his biography before September 11, 2001. If it were written after 2001, this author would have emphasized that the towers were destroyed just as predicted by Paul Cattapalli. So this internal evidence clearly points us to a pre-AD 70 date to the writing of this gospel. Then let us see the external evidence. What do we learn from the earliest manuscripts of this gospel? John Ryland's papyrus, also known as P52. It is the oldest copy yet discovered of any portion of the New Testament. It is a tiny fragment of the gospel of John containing verses from Chapter 18, it was found in Egypt in 1940. Now it resides in the John Ryland's library in Manchester, England. It is dated to the first half of the second century AD, between AD 117 to 138. That means the Gospel of John must have been written much earlier than the first half of the second century. That is so astounding. Name one other book of antiquity with such proximity between the existing manuscript and its assumed original autographs. So external evidence takes this gospel into the first century and internal evidence takes us before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So both internal and external evidence point to John as the author of this gospel. Both internal and external evidence point to a pre-AD 70 dating for the writing of this gospel. 
since john was preaching incessantly around the city of jerusalem right after the resurrection of jesus most likely he wrote this gospel within 10 to 20 years after the death of jesus but arman hates the gospel of john because it presents the divinity of jesus in this debate bart arman looks at craig evans and asks him mr evans jesus said before abraham was i am i am the way the truth and the life i am the life and resurrection my question to you sir do you think the historical jesus really said these things bart arman shot at the central doctrine of christianity in the gospel of john the divinity of jesus proclaimed by jesus himself how did craig evans respond he said i think most of these things were not uttered as we find them by the historical jesus john the apostle clearly pointed out that he testified what he heard from jesus we read in john chapter 21 at craig evans says jesus did not say those things they were put in his mouth by someone else he takes the same position but arman takes he says i suspect we don't have too much of a difference on john when a christian scholar says he does not have too much of a difference from bart arman on these vital historical issues that is shameful bart arman thinks that john did not write the gospel of john someone else wrote it and used john's name craig evans believes the same bart arman thinks that historical jesus really did not make any claims to divinity someone else put those claims in jesus's mouth craig evans believes the same craig evans goes on to describe the gospel of john as horns of another color altogether it should not be taken literally it is a giant gigantic parable it is so tricky not surprisingly then bartman looks and says i like what you said let us toss out john let us toss out john that is the aim of these scholars toss out the bible as long as bible rules our lives as the word of god christianity wins mr william led craig what do you think about the book of genesis is it real history he says no it is only a parable it's only a metaphor mr craig evans what do you think about the gospel of john is it real history he replies no it is not real history it's only a parable it's only a metaphor no wonder lots of christians are losing confidence in the bible as a literal word of god but remember these scholars are selling themselves into the opinions of atheists like what the evidence both internal and external point us to the trustworthiness of the gospel of john as a historical biography of jesus penned by one of his most beloved and closest disciples john 
the apostle may god bless you with these words if you have any questions please write to me leave your comments like this message let us close with a word of prayer lord jesus we come to thy presence thank you so much for giving us this opportunity thank you for giving this opportunity to look at the gospel of john please encourage listeners with these words bless them abundantly help them to put their trust in you as their lord savior and god in your precious name the name of jesus we pray amen thank you we will see you in next episode thank you for listening to this message please visit us on www.drpaul.org that is www.doctorpaul.org to learn more about Dr. Paul Katopali's medical ministry and teaching we are a listener supported ministry please consider a prayerful donation to our ministry to meet our ongoing expenses you can visit us online or call us we look forward to hearing from you may god richly bless you